Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. This is the early 2000s, and I was on the phone with a, a good friend who was a pastor, a youth pastor, and I was living in Cleveland with Kara, and he was on his way back from leading a retreat about relationships. And he was just telling me how great it went. Um, he was encouraged by all these teenagers who committed to have better, more godly relationships. He was really excited about it, and he got home and he said, I need to, I'm going to talk with my wife here and let her know how it went, but um, I can talk for a few more minutes. And as he went into his house, he got really quiet, and he picked up this, um, he, he picked up this letter and he started reading it, and he said, I have to go, I'm going to need to call you back. There's, this is like a seven-page letter handwritten by my wife, and the first line is, I can't do this anymore. And so he called me back in another half hour or so, and um, he said, you know, she left me. And I said, well, I'll be there. He was up in Minnesota, and uh, we made arrangements, and I went up and I spent time with him. And I was there. He's an amazing guy. He's an amazing guy, still is. And I, that week that I was with him, he was like the whole time talking about how he's going to win her heart back. And he was like, he bought these sheets that she always wanted. He got these candles. He you know, started having healthier habits, and he wanted to make a real difference and, and get her back, and she never came back. She never came back. And that was the first time for me that I realized that it's possible to teach about relationships. It's possible to be a pastor who teaches about relationships and still not have your own relationships in a position where you could say that they're thriving. We're talking about parenting today. And this is something that I want to be very, very careful as a pastor to never just be able to talk about, but I want to be a great dad. I want to be a great husband first, and then I want to be a great dad. And usually when I get parenting advice from pastors, it's always from people who, have, who don't have kids my age, but who have launched their kids successfully into the world. And I had a very wise older pastor say to me once that your church can get a new pastor. Your kids can't get a new dad. That's your priority. It's like, awesome, needed to hear that. So as we get into this parenting thing, um, and as I talk about this, you're going to see one of my gifts on full display. And that is, I'm really good at finding really good things that other people say, and then saying them to you. <laughs> Except I'm not going to be, I, I'll let you know that I'm doing that. And today I'm going to do that a lot, because I'm not qualified to teach on parenting. 
Scripture is qualified to say, to speak about parenting. I, I'm not yet because my daughters are still living with me. I love my daughters. We have a great relationship, but I don't, I think you're qualified to teach on parenting once you actually launch kids and your kids have their kids and everybody still likes each other. That's the end game goal. I, I think we're going to get there, but I don't feel qualified for this, so that's why I'm going to take wisdom from other people. In fact, I'm sure of it that there's people in this room that would teach this passage better than I could. What we're learning in Ephesians, in this section of Ephesians, is that God has organized our lives into a network of relationships. You can think of it as concentric circles with your relationship with Jesus pulsating and emanating in the center where every other relationship is energized, is informed, is shaped by your profound love and commitment to Jesus. That's, that's how we were designed to live. That's how relationships actually begin to, to flourish. The concentric circle outside of your relationship with Jesus is with that of your spouse. And then outside of that is that of your kids. And it's our responsibility in each of these relational networks to create a safe place for others to become the people that God created them to be. So what does it look like to cultivate a home environment where your kids are becoming the people that God created them to be? And the only environment in which a human being was created to flourish is that of love and grace. Every other environment makes them a smaller version of themselves, a more inhibited version of themselves. If you want to see someone truly alive, put them in an environment of grace and watch them change. That's the goal. Radical acceptance, radical love demonstrated to our kids. So we're going to look at Ephesians 6. And I'm going to today focus on verses 1 through 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 6. I believe the passage is also in the bulletin. And I'll start with verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now a lot of parents would like us to stop just right there. Let's, spend, let's do a six-week series on that passage, on that verse right there. In the same way last week that I focused on husbands when it said, wives, submit to your husbands, I'm going to focus mostly on parents today because that's mostly who's in here listening because that's a reciprocal relationship. And we got to be careful about quoting this verse to our kids because we're making ourselves responsible for what we're supposed to be responsible for, which is what we'll see. So honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So this is the first commandment with a good promise of good things that will happen. He's referring back to Exodus 20, 12. It's when God is giving these 10 words, these 10 commandments of how people who are part of God's family and part of God's nation are supposed to live differently than everybody else. What does he mean by that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land? When he was giving these commandments, 
he was preparing a land for the Israelites to move into and to take over. Now, don't feel bad for the people in their land, in the land that they're taking from, because it was a, a very wicked and evil people. They were sacrificing their kids. It was just a very not good. People sometimes feel bad, like, well, what about the people who were in the land? It, don't feel bad for them. You could do a whole study on the type of practices they did that were just heinous. And so God was preparing this place for the Israelites to move into. And one of the ways that we can think about it is there were homes that were furnished and vineyards that were ripe that the Israelites didn't furnish and didn't plant. Everything was going to be set and ready for them. Everything was going to be prepared for them. All they had to do was move into this land and God would enable them to take over these places. It was a, it was a beautiful gift. He wanted them to have their own land as a nation. And what he's saying here is one of the ways that you can guarantee that it will work, that you can live long in this land, is this simple dynamic in the home where kids are obeying their parents. That when you begin to lose this simple dynamic in the household of kids kind of stiff-arming their parents, not having any relational connection with them, so as to trust them enough to obey them, once you start losing that, you begin to breaking down, break down the fabric of a nation. <laughs> Which is, I think, where we should put most of our energy and effort if we are serious about conserving some of the good things, the unique things that God has done for us as a nation. It would probably be a good place to start with have the type of relationship where your kids are willingly and joyfully submitting to you most of the time. It means they have to trust you. And sometimes they're going to push back and stiff arm you even when you're doing it right. But most of the time, as your kids get older, if they trust that you have what's best for them, they will submit joyfully. This is where I'm taking it by faith that other people have told me that even though my daughters are very good in this, in this regard. Let's look at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do not provoke your children to anger. One of those verses that you wish wasn't in there because it puts a mirror in front of you. But that's how this reciprocal relationship works. Does your kid know that you're crazy about them? Does your kid know that of all the things that you could do with your life, second to spending time with your wife, you want to be with them? You're wild about them. And there's ways that we provoke our children. And the word provoke in the Greek, it, it's comprised of two different words. And one of them is, it means from close behind. And the other half means to become angry. It's the idea that you know specific ways to press the buttons of your kids. You know them intimately. You know them well enough to note what exasperates them. You know how to push their buttons. 
Now, here's the thing. Like, when you're growing up, when I was growing up as a, as a brother, that was my job. My responsibility as a brother was to provoke my sister Julie and Nicole and to push their buttons. I mean, that's part of the job description growing up. That's good. The problem is, when I got married, I realized that's probably not a good thing as a husband. And Kara has had to tell me several times over the years, you're treating me like I'm your sister and you're pushing my buttons and stop doing that. Because it's fun getting that type of reaction. But it's also provoking her. And I, when I had two daughters, I, I did the same thing and I still do the same thing. And, and Kenzie and Abby have to tell me sometimes, you know, they don't say it this way, but they're saying, you're provoking me, you're frustrating me. That also happens when our expectations are too high. That's something I really struggle with. Um, I can expect too much out of the people closest to me. It's not fair to them. It's not loving. It's not gracious. It's not merciful. It's not kind. So I'm learning to enjoy the people closest to me as they are without feeling like I have to control them which is going to be all of our impulse all the time. All we want to do is control people. And Jesus says, you should probably release people instead. When you provoke your kid, you're driving a wedge in the relationship. And there's subtle ways that we do this. All of us can think of probably, you know, obvious ways that we provoke our kids, but there's subtle ways that we provoke our kids too. And those are the, some of the, a few of those things I want to I highlight this morning. One of the ways we provoke our kids to anger is we neglect them. I've sat in my office with a lot of angry teenagers over the years. I was a youth pastor for 15 years, and when I'd ask them about their dad, it was often the same answer. I don't even know him. We, we never hang out. We never do anything together. So I asked about my mom, because that's easier to talk about which means it's possible to provoke your children not only by what you do, by what you don't do. And the best advice I've got in this area is make their interests your interests. You know, it doesn't matter as much what you want to be about, what you want to do, it's what do they want to do. So I've got to do all sorts of fun things. I've raised my daughters in swimming. I stopped the second they started beating me. And then I started, I'm throwing lacrosse. I've never done that before. That was a, that's, that's been awesome because I get to spend time with Abby. And Abby's into lifting right now, so we get to go to the gym together. And that's been incredible as well. And I get to play. Last night was playing volleyball, and Kenzie's telling me how to do that a little bit better. I'm never going to play volleyball, but I love playing volleyball because I get to do it with Mackenzie. So it's finding ways that you can spend time with your kids. Make their interests your interests still means you should have your own things too, but not to the neglect of having their things as your things as well. Another subtle way that we provoke our children is we try to protect them from all forms of suffering. One of the hardest lessons that Kara and I are learning as parents is that when you try to protect your kids from every form of suffering, it actually is the best way to assure that they won't have capacity for their own lives. You know, we want to send them out into the world as strong women 
who have capacity to handle life as it shows up up at their doorstep without needing to run to us. We will always be there as a support system, and they know that. But we also believe they have capacity for their own lives. And this is where I'm going to borrow from Bill Dogdrum, who is a spiritual director for my wife and I, and has had a profound influence in all things parenting and life for us. And I'm going to say a couple things that he said. These are not my quotes. This is his. It's helpful to remember that Jesus was a disappointment to his mother. Jesus was a disappointment to his mother because she could not protect him from the harm he chose. If we had it Mary's way, (laughs) we would all be condemned because her son would have never died on the cross. And that was a disappointment for her, I'm sure. The other thing that Bill said is our anxiety about not messing up our kids is often what messes them up the most. And that's very true. It's really easy today, and I think the world around us is trying to teach us how to train up our kids in the ways of anxiety, and it's working. If you're looking at the statistics of teenagers and the anxiety that is going through the roof, we need to be people who train up our kids in the ways of peace and joy. Not easy. It's going to require a lot of prayer and dependence upon the Lord, and they're not going to get there right away. But that's the end game goal, to send them out into the world as non-anxious presences in a world that is dying of anxiety. And if you don't feel that anxiety, that's a beautiful thing and a good thing, and you should be a part of bringing peace into the world because 90% of the rest of us are feeling it coming at us from the world. It's an important skill as a parent to learn to be comfortable with your kid's discomfort. Because if you're always going to rescue them, then they're going to think you're Jesus instead of Jesus. We are there, we put our arms around them, we sit beside them, but they don't look to us for answers, they look somewhere else. Somewhere that will actually help, and that is Jesus. Finally, we provoke our children when we don't release them into adulthood. Again, Bill Dogdrum says, kids start to differentiate from you at about six months. That's when they start leaving home. And you can feel kids starting to push back against you very early. It means they're trying to separate themselves from you and to to see if they can survive apart from you. And that is the ultimate goal. As we send them out, we're raising adults. We're not raising kids. Sometimes it's tempting to pretend like we're raising kids who will spend the rest of their lives dependent upon us. But we're raising adults who know how to live and survive and thrive even independent of their parents. That's the end game goal. So these are subtle ways that we provoke our children to anger. The ultimate antidote to all of these things is they know that one, we're crazy about them, which means we practice radical acceptance exactly as they are. When, we, when um, Kara and I decided to plant a church, Kara said this really well. She said, we have to make, we have to make sure that our daughters understand that 
being, even being a Christian is not a prerequisite to being part of this family. Because if we do that, we'll never give them space to explore and think and own their own faith. That's not a requirement for our love. And that's really important for me as a pastor. And that's why, I mean, I've had conversations with people before who I think were accidentally putting extra pressure on my daughters to be something different because they're a pastor's kid. And I've had to say, don't do that. Let them be exactly who they are. Let them be exactly where they are in that journey because that's not going to work. That's not fair to them and it's not fair to any kid of a pastor. But that's how you have to be an advocate for your kid. That radical acceptance, exactly as they are, might be the very thing that gets them to the place where you hope they'll be. The second thing is we believe in them. Your kids need to know that you believe they can do anything. The radical acceptance and the belief that they are competent for their lives as it is. Those are the antidotes. Now, the second part of that verse says, starts with, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But the second part it says, But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So now we look at the positive side of this commandment. And there's a few things I think we ought to prioritize as we bring our kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I'm going to give those three things, and then we're going to wrap it up. But these are the three things that I think are really, really important for us to pass along to our kids. And you'll see that it happens through our example, because a lot of the ways that Christianity as a virus is kind of spread to different people and families is through example. So you're not just saying things and living a life that nobody wants to live. You're actually living a life that is attractive. You're flourishing. You have momentum to your life. Your example is compelling. So when you speak, it complements how you're already living. That's what your kids need to see. They need to see that you actually believe what you're saying to them, that you prioritize these things. So the first thing is that we need to be an example. And how we pass that along is this. First and foremost, your kids need to see that your life doesn't make sense apart from Jesus. Your life does not make sense apart from Jesus. Move, remove Jesus from your life and the way that you live makes zero sense. And if that's not true, then we're, we're not there yet. So some examples of that, prayer. Prayer is the most productive way you can spend your time, not even a close second. It is where things that you can't make happen, happen. And the things that you can't make happen are the most important things. Your kids need to see that you prioritize prayer. And I can tell by example, I mean, my dad prayed and still does but I remember when I was stiff-arming God I was angry I was angry at God I was just you know mad at the world and I would come home from college I had this issue with just rage and I would come home from college and I would stay there in the summer and I'd go down my dad would be early in the morning on his knees praying to his almighty God never made me do it never made me get beside him but he would be doing that it was amazing the way that he prayed and the way that I saw things change when he prayed. 
He's a warrior, and nobody ever saw that in him. But there are lives that are different now because of him. I know he still prays, and he still prays for a lot of you. That doesn't make sense apart from Jesus. If you don't believe that God changes things, he intervenes in the world, in people's lives, in people's circumstances when you talk with him about it. If you don't believe that, it doesn't make sense to prayer. Pray is, prayer is weird otherwise. You're, you're talking to someone that you can't see. It doesn't make sense. You're talking out loud. And there's no one else in the room. It doesn't make sense if you don't believe that Jesus is actually alive and there and listening. Sabbath is another one. It's foundational for our lives as disciples of Jesus. It's one day a week dedicated to just enjoying God and nothing else. And if God isn't real, Sabbath doesn't make sense. Sabbath was introduced at a time in the nation of Israel where if they didn't work every day, they didn't eat. Their kids didn't eat. Their families didn't eat. And God said, take a day off. Let's see if you trust me. Not doing that just betrays the fact that we don't actually trust Jesus to provide. It means that we're taking on more than he's given us to do. Taking a Sabbath does not make sense apart from faith in God. Because when you have faith in God, he triples, quadruples the effectiveness of your life by taking that one day just to enjoy him. You get more done than you could have ever done in your own power, in your own force, in your own will, in your own drive, in your own strength. He can do more. He can do more than you. Sabbath forces us to examine, do I really trust him? Does my life make sense apart from Jesus? So part, that's part of our instructing our kids in the way of the Lord. Let them see firsthand their lives don't make sense apart from Jesus. Second thing is your kids need to see that you have an all-consuming love for Jesus. If they know one thing about you when they leave the house, it's that you are passionate about Jesus and his ways. You are a disciple of Jesus, and you put all your chips in the center of the table for him. Now, when I was in college, I used to think that it's possible to go overboard with the Jesus thing. Like, yeah, I mean, I had, I had a friend that was really fired up about God, passionate about Jesus, and I would always think, you know, there is too much of a good thing. <laughs> like, I appreciate your zeal, I appreciate your passion, but it's possible to go overboard with this Jesus thing. So I just want to warn you about that. And be, I mean, I remember even talking with him about that and him looking at me like, oh, Greg. I remember thinking, that's great for you. And I even think it's, you know, it's good to go to church, but you, you're going a bit overboard. If I could go back in time, I would say to that young Greg Grimwood, really? Which part is it possible to have too much of? Which part of following Jesus? Is it the part where he says that no matter what happens to you, if you're part of his family, he'll turn it to good? That no, nothing that happens to you is outside of his sovereign circle of grace. There is nothing that can happen to you that he won't turn to good. You're good. That's one of his promises. Nothing. Is it, is it too much of that that you're talking about? Is it, is it the part where he says that even though you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he'll be with you? That one day you'll be surrounded by a community of people who love you and they're going to be saying goodbye to you and there's a part, there's a step 
in your movement towards eternal life with Christ when you are dying that everybody else has to say goodbye. They can't go any further with you. And Jesus says, I'm with you. I'll go the whole way until we're face to face. I'm I'm not going to leave you alone in any of this, which is why in Scripture it says, death, where's your sting? I'm not scared of you anymore. I'm not alone anymore. Is that the part? You can go overboard on that part? Is that what you mean, Greg? Or is it the part where he says, no good thing will I withhold from those who walk uprightly? Is it possible to be too much into Jesus? Is it possible to be too much into the fact that he's not going to withhold anything good from us? Is that what you're talking about you can go overboard with? What I didn't realize is that believing that you can go overboard with the Jesus thing only indicated I had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. Moderation is good in everything except one, and that is Jesus Christ. I always love what um, John Wesley said. He said, I light myself on fire for Christ and people come to watch me burn. What if that's the one thing that your kids remembered about you? Saying that you can go overboard with Jesus is like saying that you can go overboard with life itself. It's like saying you can go overboard with enjoying life to the fullest because that's what Jesus does. That's the effect he has on us. The third thing that I would love to pass on to my kids is, is help your kids have an eternal perspective. Asking your kids what you want their life to look like in 50 years is a good question, but it's short-sighted. A more interesting question is what do you want your life to look like in 50 billion years from today? That forces us to consider if we actually believe what the Bible says, which makes it a very difficult question because Scripture tells us that the decisions you make today will impact the quality of your life 50 billion years from now. And what's the framework that we can use to help our kids make a decision? Is it that we want them to have a good life now? Or we want them to have a good life forever. Dallas Willard has two statements that I want to share and then we're going to wrap it up. What if your kid believed this? What if your kid believed, I am an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe? What if that was their identity? I am an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe and all the little things of this world, the little hang-ups, the little things of this world would begin to fade as you begin to see God's glorious face and their glorious eternity clearer. Because part of becoming Christian is lifting your eyes from the small things happening around us to the glorious things happening in the spaces that we can't yet see. That's what faith is. It's living for eternity.
Dallas Willard also says, when you get old, your life has hardly begun. We actually believe things like that. We actually believe that. And it changes the way we live our minutes and hours and days now. Help your kid have an eternal perspective. I want to end by saying that wherever you are on this journey, as our friend Bill Dogdrum says, Jesus can get you home, but you have to start with where you're at. I don't know what your relationships are like with your kids. It's one of my greatest joys in this life. And I'm aware that for some people, it's not that case. But wherever you are, if you start exactly where you are, if you interrogate reality and get actually to ground level truth and be honest with yourself with what your relationship is actually like right now, Jesus can get you home. And it begins with radical acceptance and love for your kid as they are right now. That's the way home. That's what Jesus has demonstrated for us. And whatever it looks like for you, that's the first step home. Why don't you um, stand and I'll pray for us and then we'll, we'll sing together. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.